Hi friends, just before we dive into today's episode, I want to ask a huge favor from you. Would you please consider being a supporter of the Why Catholic Podcast? There's four ways you can do this. First, you can become a patron and financially support this podcast. The basic level is $5 a month. To become a patron, go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Secondly, you can support this podcast by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Just go to etsy.com slash shop slash whycatholic. Third, you can also support Why Catholic by sharing episodes with your community. And lastly, you can support Why Catholic by inviting me to come and speak at your next parish event. For more information about that, please send me an email at whycatholic@substack.com. Thank you, friends, for your help. I couldn't do this without you. I once read St. Augustine's work, De Trinitate, in which he tries to explain the theology of the Trinity. Each chapter is an attempt to use an analogy to understand the Trinity, and in each chapter, he ends up by saying, nope, that's not quite right. At the end of the book, he apologizes for it being so long and concludes that perhaps we can't make sense of the mystery of the triune God. If you're looking for a book to tell you everything that the Trinity is not, then I would recommend St. Augustine's work, De Trinitate. There's a humorous anecdote about St. Augustine that goes like this. One day, Augustine was walking along the seashore when he observed a young boy digging a hole in the sand. As he watched from a distance, the boy took a bucket, ran to the ocean, filled the bucket with water, and dumped the bucket into the hole, and he did this repeatedly. Finally, Augustine approached the boy and asked him what he was doing, to which the boy replied that he intended to empty the entire ocean and fill it in the hole he had dug. St. Augustine replied, Are you mad? You can't fill the hole with the entire ocean. The boy replied, I bet I can fill this hole with the entire ocean faster than you can explain the mystery of the Trinity. And with that, the boy vanished. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. Today, we're beginning a new series, a series about the nature of God as we understand it in the Catholic faith. I suppose I could have begun this podcast with this series on the nature of God, kind of like the Catechism does. However, I chose instead to explain the sacramental worldview, the framework of the Catholic and Orthodox faiths, as I believe this answers the question, what is different from historical Christian sects that is missing in post-Protestant Reformation Christian denominations? And why do Catholics do what they do? Why do they center worship around the Eucharist? Why do they confess their sins to a priest? Why are there priests to begin with? However, today I'd like to begin discussing the nature of God. Frankly, I considered doing a series on the Blessed Virgin Mary next, since the Catholic position differs greatly from other Christian denominations, but I thought it would be quite backwards to talk about the nature of the Theotokos, meaning God-bearer, before talking about God himself, since everything we believe about Mary comes from what we believe about God, and specifically, what we believe about God the Son. If you've listened to this podcast, you'll know that I draw on a variety of sources. Some episodes have a longer works cited list than others. Some sources I'm quite fond of, and so I use them frequently. For this series, I want to rely heavily on the voice of one who made me fall in love with apologetics. None other than Clive Staples Lewis, better known as C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, of course. But perhaps his most famous work is his book, Mere Christianity, a clever title for sure. In fact, the title of this episode is named after a chapter from Mere Christianity. So it goes without saying that if you haven't read Mere Christianity, you ought to. I want to first begin by talking about the most basic premise of Christianity. One might say that it is the belief in Jesus and that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. But I would argue that the most basic premise of Orthodox Christianity is in fact the Trinity, that God is one being in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The oldest creeds, the Apostles and Nicene creeds, are structured around the Trinity, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, and in the Holy Spirit, etc. 
In fact, as a Protestant with a variety of denominational experiences, we recognized other Trinitarian denominations as having some sort of symbiotic relationship with us. However, those who rejected the Trinity we considered a cult. Catholicism is not much different. The Catholic Church recognizes those baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and who have a similar theology of the Trinity as sharing in the same baptism. The Church does not rebaptize those who have been baptized in a similar Trinitarian formula as Catholics. However, the Catholic Church maintains that those who have been baptized in a theological tradition that rejects the Orthodox doctrine of the Trinity are not truly baptized Christians. This is why I believe that the Trinity is the most basic premise of Orthodox Christianity. While these episodes may be helpful for those considering Christianity, those who are Protestant may find themselves in accord with everything in this series, which begs the question, why Catholic, when Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians and Lutherans and Methodists and many other churches share the same view of the most basic premise of Christianity, the Trinity? I would offer that it was the Catholic Church that defined for us the Trinity. After all, it was the Catholics that defended the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea against the heresy of Arianism. And while one may argue that the Trinity can be deduced from Scripture, I would contend that considering the term Trinity is not explicitly in Scripture, we rely heavily on church tradition to help us to see the Trinity in Scripture, whether we admit it or not. Now about the Trinity. One of the primary arguments against it is that it makes no sense. How can a son be co-eternal with a father? We recognize the relationship between a father and a son. A father conceives with a woman and makes a son. But this notion that a father and a son are not only consubstantial, meaning of the same substance, but co-eternal, meaning existing simultaneously from the beginning, is rather bizarre. Many times I've heard people preface a statement about God by saying, I cannot imagine a God who, and whether what follows seems reasonable or not, the premise of the statement is all wrong. If you can imagine a God, then maybe your God is too small. For a God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent is so far outside of our experience that, I don't know about you, but I struggle to imagine any of it. I cannot quite comprehend a God that is three persons, yet one being, in the same way that I cannot comprehend a God that is eternal. And yet, I think that is completely appropriate for a God that is outside of my dimension of time and space. Concerning this episode, the three-personal God is named after a chapter in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I think it's only fitting that we should quote a portion of his chapter. You know that in space, you can move in three ways, to left or right, backwards or forwards, up or down. Every direction is either one of these three or a compromise between them. They are called the three dimensions. Now notice this. If you are using only one dimension, you could draw only a straight line. If you are using two, you could draw a figure, say a square. And a square is made up of four straight lines. Now a step further. If you have three dimensions, you can then build what we call a solid body, say a cube, a thing like a dice or a lump of sugar. And a cube is made up of six squares. Do you see the point? A world of one dimension would be a straight line. In a two-dimensional world, you still get straight lines, but many lines make one figure. In a three-dimensional world, you still get figures, but many figures make one solid body. In other words, as you advance to more real and more complicated levels, you do not leave behind you the things you found on the simpler levels. You still have them, but combined in new ways, in ways you could not imagine if you knew only the simpler levels. Now, the Christian account of God 
involves just the same principle. The human level is a simple and rather empty level. On the human level, one person is one being, and any two persons are two separate beings. Just as in two dimensions, say on a flat sheet of paper, one square is one figure, and any two squares are two separate figures. On the divine level, you still find personalities, but up there you find them combined in new ways which we, who do not live on that level, cannot imagine. In God's dimension, so to speak, you find a being who is three persons while remaining one being, just as a cube is six squares while remaining one cube. Of course, we cannot fully conceive a being like that, just as if we were so made that we perceived only two dimensions in space, we could never properly imagine a cube. But we can get a sort of faint notion of it. And when we do, we are then, for the first time in our lives, getting some positive idea, however faint, of something super personal, something more than a person. If I may be so bold, I would like to add something to Mr. Lewis's brilliant analogy on the complexity of dimensions. As Lewis noted, when we move up into more complex dimensions, we don't leave the concepts of the less complex dimensions behind, but rather we build on them. So in the second dimension, we still have lines, but we have more of them. In the third dimension, we still have boxes, but we have more of them to form a cube. However, if God is the most complex of the dimensions and he created us in his image, then the inverse ought to be true. We ought to see that there is something of the more complex dimension injected into our less complex dimension. That is to say, we might see a shadow of a three-dimensional shape in our two-dimensional world. There is a clue that the complex Trinitarian dimension has been injected into our dimension. We see it both in the Old Testament and the New, even in the earliest pages of Scripture. The Bible tells us that a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Many have suggested that this means that the two will have sexual intercourse, or that they will procreate and create offspring, but I think that is too simplistic, too humanistic of an answer. I think, too, becoming one flesh means we will in some way experience the complexity of the God dimension. In the creation story, every time God created something, the sun, the earth, the animals, mankind, he gave it his stamp of approval by saying, it is good. But as he was observing his opus, he noticed that something was not good, something was missing. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. Here's the question I wonder, how in the world did God recognize that something was missing from his creation? He made mankind. Mankind had a relationship with God. How did he perceive that man was actually alone? Now think about a chef. A Michelin star rated chef can sample a dish and immediately tell you what's missing. Why? Because he has a sophisticated palate and knows what good food should taste like. His cooking is on another dimension. And being a master of seasonings, he can identify if something needs more salt or oregano or turmeric. Likewise, there's something about the experience of God that led him to recognize that something essential was absent from his creation. Man lacks something that God had. God had a relationship with persons that were consubstantial, meaning of the same substance. And while man was created in the image of God, it is to say a two-dimensional being had a relationship with a three-dimensional being, but did not have a relationship with a being of his own dimension. I can imagine God the Father saying something like, Here, I've gotten to live eternally as one being and three persons, always having the companionship of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Mankind needs a relationship like I've always had, a relationship with another person in his dimension. 
And so creating mankind in his own image means that not only did he create Adam and Eve individually in his image, but he brought them together to become one flesh, one being, and two distinct persons. For in his complex nature, multiple persons can be one being. And so not only do we see the complexities of one dimension built upon itself in another dimension, as C.S. Lewis noted, but we also see the complexities of the God dimension inside our dimension as well, that multiple persons can be one being, that a man and woman can become one flesh. Of course, there are noticeable differences between God's dimension and ours. The obvious one is that he is one being and three persons, whereas a husband and wife are two persons in one being. And there's something else as well. The Godhead is a perfect relationship, yet I have never heard a husband and wife claim to have a perfect relationship. Why do we struggle to have a relationship with one other person, whereas God has a perfect relationship of three? The answer is sin. Sin has made a mess of our dimension, and it does so in two major ways. First, it mars our relationship with God, and it mars our relationship with others. We struggle to have the natural relationship that the three-personal God has. When we read about the relationship between God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Gospels, there's an uncanny synchronicity. Each are so in tune with each other, each yield to each other, as though they want the other to receive the place of prominence and honor. The Father, on a couple of occasions, speaks audibly in praise of his Son. The Son is constantly praying to and relying on the Father. The Son says he must leave so that the Holy Spirit may come. And the Holy Spirit is constantly pointing people to the Son. And what was Jesus' dying wish? In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed that his followers would be one as he and the Father are one. As I think about that prayer, I think that Jesus recognized something that we often don't, mainly how Satan tries to destroy us and infect our dimension. The very first sin was one of independence. Satan convinced Eve that she could accomplish becoming like God without God, and in fact do so by acting contrary to God's wishes, and he convinced her to do this absent from her husband Adam. The result was catastrophic. Instead of harmony between Adam and Eve, there was immediate disunity and contempt. The woman you gave me caused me to do this, Adam said to God. He turned not only on his unified companion Eve, but he turned on God as creator and blamed him for this horrendous mistake. It is no wonder that our society, in becoming increasingly godless, tries to make independence a chief virtue. It is no wonder that young men and women are told to wait as long as possible to settle down and be married. Marriage is not treated as a sacrament, but as a burden, the old ball and chain. Why? Because of sin. Because sin leads us to independence rather than interdependence, or sin leads us to dependence on unnatural things. The whole point of the gospel is that God transcends into our dimension through the incarnation. The being of another complex dimension adds a whole level of complexity by becoming one of us. And why should he do such an outrageous thing? Because this is the great rescue. This is God restoring what Satan has destroyed. The only way for us to live in complete harmony as the triune God lives in complete harmony is for him to invade us, not only our world, but our very being, and to inject his complexity into our dimension. Mankind has been kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So what is the remedy? It is not merely to bring us back into the Garden of Eden, but to implant Eden into the very fabric of our being. This is what makes Christianity so different from other religions. Other religions, of course, have a concept of another God of another dimension. But what about a God that descends into our dimension that is unheard of? And this is what we mean by saying that God is personal. He longs to bridge the divide that's been severed by sin. And he crosses all sorts of hurdles to do it, particularly the divide between the human and God dimensions. So what does this mean for us? How might we turn this from a theory to practice? 
The answer is this. Let God invade your heart. Let him be personal with you as he desires to be personal with you. Become more and more interdependent on God. And perhaps one day you'll wake up and find that the very thought of getting out of bed before interacting with God is a far-fetched and dangerous idea. And I imagine that if you arrive at that point, all of the other relationships you have with humans will reflect the harmony of the Trinity as well. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. And patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.